Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Find any excuse to wear it. So I'm supporting the Browns today. I know they're not playing. It's okay. It's okay. It's fine. Uh, work with me on this one. God bless you. If you if you have your Bible, grab that. We're gonna study today. We're jumping back into our study in the Gospel of Luke, and it's very very exciting. A neat parable we're gonna hit today. Kind of unusual, and so I want to walk through it kind of slowly. I want to unpack all the stuff that we're supposed to learn and apply. This one's pretty deep. So buckle up. This should be fun. As we start, I want to tell you I have a recurring dream. This is the only dream that I have that I remember. I know that everybody dreams, and most of the time you don't remember them. And the dreams that I don't remember, I'm sure the Browns are playing in the Super Bowl today, and they win every year. And the dreams that I don't remember, eating peanut butter straight from the jar makes you look like Captain America. But I don't remember those dreams. This is the one dream that I remember. I have this dream. I don't know if anybody else has one like this. I'm in a play. I was cast in a theatrical production, and I walk out on stage on opening night, and I don't know my lines. Didn't memorize my lines. And it's terrifying. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying. And, and I have some experience. I did high school in, in uh, theater department and enjoyed that and was in all the plays. And I went to college and I would have liked to continue, but I was working full time and I was a full time student. And so I just didn't have time to be involved. But I had a bunch of friends in the theater department at Southeast Missouri State University. And, and so one year they were doing this big production. It was a play that I had read and enjoyed. It was Amadeus, the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And, and I thought, man, that'd be a great play. I can't, you know, take part. But they didn't have enough people audition. Had a ton of roles. And so my friends talked to me. and was like, why don't you just come and audition? You'll get a, a small part. You probably won't even have to go to all the practices, right? So they talked me into it. I went and I, and I auditioned and I got one of the leads in this play. <laughs> And so now I'm a full-time student and, and full-time on my job, and now I'm every night doing this, which really cut into my wiffle ball time because I, I minored in wiffle ball in college and, and played a lot. And that semester I didn't get to, so, but I was just super, super busy. And so I know what goes into memorizing all the lines, right? I'm pretty sure God, I wasn't a Christ follower then. I think God used that time to get me comfortable standing in front of loads of people talking. And so it really has helped me become a better teacher. But, but it's just terrifying, to think about standing up in front of people and not knowing what you're going to say. And that's for me. And then I think, oh gosh, you know, the poor audience there, when I say nothing, they're going to be so disappointed. Not to mention a director who's going to be hopping mad that I didn't put the work in, right? And then thankfully at that moment, whew, I wake up and it's just a dream. What if it wasn't? What if it wasn't a play in the theater? What if it was the end of my life on this planet as I know it? And I'm standing there before God and everybody, everybody I've ever interacted with. The director of the play is God himself, and I don't know the lines. Well, I'd be praying that was a dream, right? Well, that's a situation, and I don't know if the theater thing works for you. If that doesn't work, you can imagine other scenarios. Hey, I was supposed to study for this big test. There was a big test coming, and I didn't put in the work. I didn't study, and now all of a sudden, test day's here, and I'm stuck. Today, in honor of the Super Bowl, it's a big game. I, big game's coming, and I didn't learn the plays. I didn't practice, I sat on the couch, and so when the big game comes, I'm not ready. If we can get a picture of something like that in our mind, I think it's gonna help us grasp what God is teaching through this parable, okay? So if you don't have your Bible, join me on the Sky Bible. This is how Luke introduces the scene. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. 
while they were listening to these things. Now, in this context, this is when Jesus was hanging out with Zacchaeus last week, right? Saw him up in the sycamore tree and called to him and said, hey, I must have dinner at your house and, and had this divine appointment to offer grace and mercy on a sinner. While they were seeing all that, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Now, why did he tell this parable at this particular time? Because remember, they are on their way. Jericho wasn't their final destination. They are on their way to Jerusalem. So they were near Jerusalem and they supposed, this group of followers, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. All the people following Jesus thought the theatrical production, the big game, the big test, it was going to happen the second that Jesus set foot in Jerusalem. Only their big game was Jesus was going to institute what? His kingdom here on earth. That's what they wanted, whether they were ready or not. That's, that's what they thought they wanted, right? But they hadn't put in any time, hadn't put in any work. And they were fast forwarding past all the talk that Jesus had about going to the cross, <laughs> and resurrection and ascension. They wanted to skip all that and just fast forward to the kingdom part. And so Jesus tells this parable, let them know, hey, there's a lot of work still to be done. Now listen to me, this isn't work that would earn our salvation. There's no work like that in the Bible. This is work that would show evidence of their salvation. You gotta put in the work. And I love the way that Luke is inspired to write this because it fits in real nicely with what we actually talked about last week with our purpose statement and our mission statement, our vision statement here at the church. Because we said our vision was we're supposed to join God where? Where he's at work. We're supposed to do business with God. We're supposed to make disciples who make disciples. That's work in the kingdom, right? If you grabbed one of the outlines on your way in, that's the title of the sermon today. We're in business with God. So there's this sense we're not supposed to just sit back and twiddle our thumbs and wait for Jesus to come back. We're supposed to get busy. We're supposed to engage. We're supposed to go out and love God with everything we've got. We're supposed to go out and love our neighbor as ourselves. We're supposed to be used in God's church to bring God the glory he's worthy of, to build up the body of believers. That's the work we're supposed to do while we're waiting for his kingdom to come. And one day, Jesus will come back. And when he does, we're going to have to give an account for how we joined him in that business. How are we going to face him? Uh, sorry, Jesus, I didn't memorize my lines. Sorry, Jesus, I didn't study for the big test. Sorry, Jesus, I didn't train for the big game. Is that the way we're going to respond? One day, I pray it soon. I'd like to see the Browns make the Super Bowl first, yes, but, but I pray it soon. He's going to come back and he's going to ask, have we been faithful with the resources, the gifts he's given us? That's the underlying question. The action begins in verse 12. There Jesus says this. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then he was going to return, okay? Do we get this? The guy goes, and he's going to receive a kingdom. He's not going to stay in the kingdom. He's going to go back. He'll come back later, but he, he's going to leave for a while. And so this nobleman, he called 10 of his slaves. He gave them 10 minas, okay? And I think this is one mina for each slave. Everybody gets the same amount. And he said to them, do business with this until I come back. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. Now, I know there's no historical comparison for this because every group that we see that has a king or a ruler or a president over them, every group really is appreciative of that person. They love that guy. So we can't imagine this in our, oh, wait. 
history repeats itself a lot, is all I'm saying. But, but back in the day, when Luke was recording this account, there was common knowledge of the fact that something like this had just happened. A guy named Herod the Great, and we hear his name in history. He had a young son named Archelaus. And Archelaus traveled to Rome to receive the kingdom of Judea. Caesar Augustus was going to give it to him. Archelaus was going to rule over the kingdom of Judea without being there, right? That's a picture that was fresh in their mind. But the people hated Archelaus. They didn't want him to be the ruler. But Augustus wanted to give him the kingdom, and he came up with a compromise. He was going to call him by a different title. He was going to call Archelaus an ethnarch instead of a king, and then hope that Archelaus would win the people over and they'd refer to him as king. It didn't happen, right? So Jesus is not talking about that. I'm pretty confident he's talking about God coming down from heaven to put on flesh, become king, not being accepted by his people. That's the real context. But I bet a lot of people hearing this story missed it because they were thinking about Archelaus. We can see this hypothetical situation. It's going to fit with this notion of God coming, finding people who don't want to be ruled by him, and him giving us some resources that we're supposed to go out and do business with to produce a return on his investment. I think that's what the parable teaches, starting in verse 16. The master returns to get account from his slaves. The first appeared, says, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And the master is supposed to be Jesus in this parable. Jesus says, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. Because of that, you are to be an authority over 10 cities. That sounds good. Second came saying, your mind, a master has made five minas. He said to him also, you're going to be over five cities. Uh-oh, verse 20. Another came saying, master, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. Why? Because I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down. You reap what you did not sow. And Jesus said to him, by your own words, I'm going to judge you, you worthless slave. You're saying that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. So he has this interaction with these slaves who got the mina. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from this last guy and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. They think that's wild. They said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. Well, Jesus is teaching a lesson here. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And then he closes hard. Verse 27, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. It's a tricky parable. I want to unpack this pretty carefully because this parable gets linked with another parable from God's word that appears in the gospel of Matthew. It's called the parable of the talents. I don't believe they're the same parable. I think they're two separate stories. For starters, the amounts in the parable are way different. They're talking about God giving us something. A mina was actually a weight measurement, just a unit of measurement back in the Hebrew world. A mina was worth like 60 shekels. And shekels were just little small copper units of weight measurement. And think about it real easily with our system of money. Pennies are a small copper unit of wealth measurement. Well, our money system kind of came from the Hebrew system of weights. And so in this parable, it took 60 shekels, 60 small pieces of copper. That equaled one mina. That's what we see here in Luke. In that parable in Matthew, 
The talents there, they're not talking about abilities that we might have. It's like Israel's got talent. It's not that at all. A talent was just another unit of measurement. But it was worth way more. It was worth 60 minas. So it's a whole lot more money in that parable. And also in that parable, a businessman gives differing amounts to the three different slaves. But here in Luke, the nobleman gives exactly the same amount to each one of the slaves. Everybody gets one mina. So although we only hear from three recipients, I think these are not the same parable. There are similarities. But I think in our story, we're supposed to learn and apply from the response we see from these people who didn't want the nobleman to rule over them in the first place. So what are the takeaways? What are we going to learn? You got the outline coming in. Number one is this. The eternal kingdom isn't here yet, okay? The eternal kingdom is yet to come. Now, we see this so often in Scripture, and God's people miss it all the time, even Jesus' disciples. They could not get over this fact that they wanted Jesus to be an earthly king, and they wanted it to happen right then and right there. They wanted him to show up and in all this majesty and glory and just start wiping their enemies off the face of the earth. That's what they hoped would happen as they're on this journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. And they hope that the minute Jesus steps foot in Jerusalem, he's gonna rule and reign. And that's why the crowds were so big that Zacchaeus had to climb up in the sycamore tree to see Jesus. Now, Jesus is saying nothing that would make them think this. He keeps saying actually the opposite. It's like, yes, there's a present form of the kingdom available to you today because I'm here, right? In the same way we have a present form of the kingdom because we have a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus. So once we profess faith, our eternal life has already begun. We are experiencing part of the kingdom today, but there's a fullness of the eternal kingdom that is still to come. We're gonna see that, the Bible tells us, when Jesus returns, when he crushes Satan. That's in the future. But man, folks struggled with this. They struggled with the fact that they had to wait. They so much wanted Jesus to just inaugurate that right then. This helps us correlate the Bible. This is why everyone was so defeated when Jesus actually went to the cross and died. Because even though he'd been preaching to them a jillion times over about crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, they skipped that part. They didn't want to hear that part. Even his closest guys, even his disciples, we know this because of what we see when the resurrected Jesus returns. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They came together, and the disciples were asking the resurrected Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time? Now? Is it going to happen now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? These are not patient people. (laughs) Like, come on, let's get on with it, Jesus. Let's set up shop, and we'll start calling down thunder and lightning, and we'll rain it on our enemies. Now, praise the Lord, through the Holy Spirit's help, they eventually do get it. The disciples get it. Just a couple chapters later, Acts chapter 3, you can read that on their own. But it took a long time to get there. They just couldn't wait. And Jesus was explaining all along, yes, I'm your present king, but I'm going to go away for a while. I've got to go and prepare a place for you. But when I return, when I come back in power and in glory, you guys are finally going to grasp this whole kingdom thing. Until I do, in the interim, there's some business you need to do. There's some work I want you to do for me. And I want you to take the gospel message, the good news, and go spread it around. That's what the resource is. That's what the mina represents. Sharing that good news so that people will place their faith in Christ. So the eternal kingdom's not here yet, but in this present kingdom, we've got work to do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Second takeaway is this. Every Christ follower gets the same resource. 
We all get the same thing to use for God's glory. I think this is the key difference between this parable and the parable of the talents in Matthew. Because in that parable, folks get differing amounts to work with. I think the parable of the talents is actually about spiritual giftedness. Because every Christ follower does get a spiritual gift, but we don't all get the same one there, right? Some people get the gift of teaching, and some people get the gift of helps, and some people get the gift of encouragement. And so you can't be held accountable for not using a gift that you don't have. You're supposed to use the gift that God gives you. That's why we come together as a body, so we can all use those differing gifts to bring God's glory. I I think that's what that is about. Parable of the talents is a a neat parable. But but again, it's not a a God-given ability. It's a unit of money. And here in this parable, everyone gets the same amount. Everyone gets the same resource. That's because we're all out sharing the same gospel message. We all get to share that same story, that the God who created us loves us so much that he wants to have us reconciled back to him. He wants us to profess faith, so we'll be part of that eternal kingdom. And that good news is what everybody gets to share all across the world if we're Christ followers. But I love in this parable, 10 random people each get this mina. So now we know, well, this isn't just aimed at the disciples. This isn't just for leaders in the church. This is everybody, right? We're all supposed to be doing God's business because he's our king, he's our ruler, whether we want him to be or not. For Christ followers, we do want him to be. One day he's gonna come back and there's gonna be a test. He's gonna show up and ask, did you memorize your lines? You prepare for the test? Did you put in the time in the weight room? How are we gonna answer? Number three, while we're out sharing this good news, this gospel message, the power is in the good news. It's not in us. It's not in our great ability to share the gospel. That's helpful because often when we go out to share the gospel, our intended audience doesn't want to hear it. They might actually be hostile to the good news. That's something we're going to have to realize. It's, It's not brand new with us. This has been happening for a long time. One of the saddest verses to me in all of Scripture short little verse found in the Gospel of John. And that's where Jesus is there right before his crucifixion. And Pilate presents Jesus to the Jewish people. Do you remember that? And he says, behold your king. And this is what the people said. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They don't want Jesus to rule over them. Church family, today when we encounter people who are hostile to Jesus, when we encounter people who are hostile to the gospel message, do we think we're the first ones who found people who feel that way? It's a fallen world filled with fallen people. When we go out to do this business carrying the gospel message, that's the kind of reaction we should expect. So yeah, there's some risk. People might be mean to us. There's there's this healthy fear we're going to be persecuted. We're going to face rejection. But facing that risk is better than not sharing the gospel at all. That's the picture we actually get in this parable. The guy who takes his mind and wraps it up in his hanky and drops it in his sock drawer. He hides it. Boy, it's a good thing I know where that gospel message is in case I need it. I'll pull it back out of my sock drawer. No, that's not the idea. We're supposed to share it. We're supposed to spread it even though it's risky, even though we'll probably encounter hostility. We're supposed to be faithful to be obedient to do that. And the implication is the power of the mina, the power of the resource, that's all that's needed to produce a return on the investment. 
Church, the power of the gospel is in that good news message, not how creatively I present it, not how slick a presentation I can come up with. And, and, and I would encourage you, be creative. Find ways to reach out to people that way. But, but the power's not in the talent of the messenger. Amen? That's what we see in the parable. The servants don't say, well, master, my great business skill has multiplied your mina. No. What do they say? Your mina has made 10 minas more. Your mina, master, has made five minas. The power's in the mina, not in the servants. Power of the gospel is not that we're slick. It's God's power working through his word. So that begs the question, do we see ourselves in this scenario? I hope that we do. Do we understand we're supposed to be in business with Jesus sharing the gospel? Because he's entrusted every Christ follower with that same story. And he's asking us to go and invest. That's our task in the world. I don't know if we ever thought of ourselves that way. We're supposed to be gospel entrepreneurs. We're just in the gospel business, going out and peddling Jesus' resource to earn him a profit until he comes back. If we haven't been thinking of it that way, I think we probably should change our thinking because we don't want to be the test taker who didn't study. We don't want to be the athlete who didn't train. We don't want to be the actor who didn't learn the lines because at some point in time, the teacher, the coach, the director is going to return. We're going to have to answer some questions. That's what verse 16 says. When the boss returns, he's going to call us in and say, what would you do with those resources? Are we ready to answer? Number four, because we're going to be called into account for how Jesus joined us in his business, we have to figure out which group we belong to. Really kind of three groups in mind in this parable. The first is coming from the two groups of servants because they're, they're segmented. There's a couple servants who actually respond well and faithfully. There's one servant who doesn't, right? Ten servants got the mina. We hear from three of them. The first servant, he got one mina. He got busy. He went out and reaped a tenfold profit. God turned that one mina into 10 minas. Now, I, this is a parable, so I don't think we have to take this literally. I don't think this is like this guy went out and led 10 people to the Lord. I think the picture is just supposed to be faithfulness. This servant took what God entrusted to him and he used it wisely. Did great business for the king. And he gets to hear that thing that I believe all Christ followers truly want to hear. In verse 17, the master says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful slave. Because you've been faithful in a little thing, I'm going to put you in charge of what? Ten cities. Again, I don't think that's literal. I don't know that we're going to rule cities, but it could be, right? I think it's just this picture of we're going to be rewarded with more responsibility in the future. That's a wise practice across the board. If you own a business and, and one of your employees is faithful, what do you do? You give them more responsibility because they're trustworthy. That makes sense. Same thing happens to the second faithful slave. We don't see the intentional praise here, but I, I bet it was there. I bet he also heard well done, and he's rewarded proportionally, just like this first faithful servant. And I don't even mind the difference in proportion here, because again, I don't take this literally as a parable. Because we got to be honest, when we go out to do business with the gospel message, there's a lot of factors that are outside of our control. First and foremost being, we can't save anybody. <laughs> like, it's not our job. We can't do it. So if Brian and I went out this week and we were going to share the gospel and we went out and were faithful and I shared the gospel and one person accepted Christ and I get all excited and I come back and I meet with Brian and have lunch. He goes, man, I went out and 10 people accepted Christ. And he didn't do 10 times better than me. 
Although he's going to brag, I'm sure, when we get together for the lunch, right? I would. <laughs> no, but, but the idea is we're both just being rewarded for our faithfulness. God's the one who's going to get the glory all the same. So the trickiest part of this parable is not that the rewards are proportional. It's that the reward so far out, out exceeds the business that we're doing. The reward is so much greater. Did you catch that in verse 17? I don't want to miss this. Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in what? A very little thing. You're to be an authority over 10 cities. As we go out and share this resource, what does God call that? We're faithful in a very little thing. We use that phrase probably too much. Ah, it's the least I could do. That's what this is. <laughs> Going out and sharing the gospel as Christ followers, that's the least we could do. That's the bare minimum for Christ followers. That's supposed to be the floor. And yet when we do that very, very little thing, Jesus says we're going to get ridiculously blessed. We're going to receive grace upon grace upon grace. It's this overwhelming notion that we'll be blessed so far beyond our efforts. Why? Because of who we're in business with. Not because of how we're doing the business. It's because of how powerful this message is that we're sharing. I think one of the key takeaways here is just when we're faithful like that, we're going to rule with him. I don't know that it'll be over 10 cities or five cities. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But that correlates in Scripture real clearly. So what we actually see in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul writes, if we endure, we will also what? Reign with him. That's a job we're going to get in the future. This is how he tells the church in Corinth. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we'll judge angels? How much more matters of this life? John says it too in Revelation. He specifically mentions the millennial reign when Jesus returns and, and reigns for a thousand years here on earth. He says this, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. So who's he talking to? Christ followers. When Jesus comes back, those folks aren't gonna have to worry about the second death that has no power. Why? Because they're gonna be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years here on earth. I'll readily admit, I don't 100% know what that's gonna look like. But if our thoughts of heaven, my, my kids have been scared about the idea of eternity in heaven before because they're like, what do we do, sit on a cloud and play a harp? I, no, don't think that's the picture. God is gonna give us something satisfying to do. We are gonna reign with him. We're gonna rule with him. It blows my mind. He's preparing this meaningful work. We're gonna be in business with him sounds exciting to me. But the rewards are only possible because of his grace. Our part is just to go out and do good business with the resources we've given. And we know that because there's a cautionary tale in this parable. There's a servant who doesn't do good business. He takes the resource and wraps it up and hides it, right? Gets everything taken from him. It's a tough picture. And the guy comes and he offers his excuse. Oh, I was scared of you, master. I'm scared because you're mean, you're unfair. And the master is not having it. He comes back with a new least you could do. He lowers the bar. He says, at the very least, you could have put my resource in the bank instead of in the sock drawer. At least I would have made some interest on my money. I've walked with Christ long enough. I don't know if this is true for you or not, but, but I guarantee it is for me. I know people who have met the Lord, who have begun a relationship with Jesus because someone who didn't know Jesus shared the gospel with them. The power is not in the messenger. 
The power is in the message. And Jesus is saying, even if you didn't get it, you could have gone out and shared it. You could have put it in the bank. The master takes away his mina that he'd been hiding in the hanky. He gives it to this guy who has 10 minas. He explains why in verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. This is confusing. He says, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And that's so weird. It takes everybody by surprise. They're like, whoa, whoa, hold on. What happened? (laughs) This guy lost his mina and it went to the guy with 10 minas? What's going on? Now remember, this is a parable, okay? The parables Jesus tells where he lays aside a truth against a real life literal truth that we're having a hard time grasping. And so he tells a story to help us grasp that. From a salvation standpoint, we recognize this, right? We understand. When we have a relationship with Jesus, we receive eternal abundant life. That's what we get. Because of God's love, because of his great mercy, we get that. That's a feel-good story. We like that. The flip side is folks who don't know Jesus, people who don't have a relationship with God, all that they have, which is just this life on this planet, it's taken away. They're going to receive eternal separation from God. That standard's very clear in Scripture. So we have to be aware of that. The real question becomes, who does this third servant represent? Is this guy actually a Christ follower? Is this a guy who who truly was supposed to serve the king, he's a believer in Christ, and his reward gets snatched away? Because Scripture paints the possibility that that could be true. This guy could make it into heaven and have no rewards. Remember Paul talking about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15? If any man's work is burned up, and it's not any man, in context we understand he's talking about Christ followers. If any Christ follower's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. We can be saved with no rewards. We make it as though through the fire. Is that this guy? He makes it into heaven by the skin of his teeth, but he's got no rewards? Or is this guy a non-believer? Is this a guy who claims to know God, but the evidence would have us go the other way? The evidence would point to him not having a saving relationship. Paul describes a guy like that as well. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Which camp does this guy fall into? Now, this question is not hard for me, honestly, because the context, I don't think there's any way this guy's a Christ follower. Because he doesn't say things a Christ follower would say. He doesn't know things about God. The picture that he paints of God is all wrong. He paints this picture of a harsh God, not a sovereign God. He says he's exacting, he's reaping what he did not sow. That's not God. For Christ followers, we get it. God's not harsh, he's just. God's not stingy at all, he's generous. And I promise you, everything he reaps, he sowed because he's in charge of everything. So I think this guy represents a guy who's not a believer. I think that's the case here. He represents people who have heard the gospel, but then they're indifferent towards that good news. And as a result, they don't go out and share it. They don't invest the resource in people's lives. That's the kind of person who would take the greatest treasure ever and hide it in their sock drawer. They won't share the story even if they don't believe the story. Why? Because they're only concerned about themselves. They're not concerned about loving God and loving their neighbors. Three groups that have to be called into account. The first there was the faithful servants, those first two servants who had the mina multiplied. The next was this unfaithful servant. But there's another group. 
right? There's a bunch of rebellious folks who didn't get a mina to invest, and they don't want the king to rule over them in the first place. What's their fate? Verse 27 laid it out pretty clearly. They're slayed in the king's presence. They get wiped out. That's a pretty gruesome picture, and that's just a reminder for us the Bible is not always G-rated. The Bible's not PG in a lot of places. The Bible's pretty serious, right? But I want to say that this actually is sugarcoating what happens to the actual fate of these people. It's not just that they die. They are eternally separated from God. And hear me on this. Not because God wants them to be. We know in God's word it says he wants everyone to be saved. He desires everyone have a relationship with him. He created all people to be reconciled back to him. This separation comes as a consequence when we reject the offer God made for salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. But the offer is there. It's free. It's out there. And it's the thing we as Christ followers are supposed to be doing business with. We're supposed to share that offer to everybody we come in contact with. Here's the reality. Some folks will not accept it. And they're going to have to give an account to God one day. So what do we learn in in this parable? There's no neutral position regarding Jesus Christ. This is what we heard from the letters to the churches in Revelation. There's no lukewarm spot that's safe. Everybody here in this message, every person who has ever lived on this planet, every person who will until Jesus comes back, we're going to fall into one of these three categories when we have a chance to do business with God. We can go out and be obedient. We can be faithful empowered by the Holy Spirit because of our relationship with Jesus. We can be good stewards of the gospel message. Or we can reject it ourselves, talk a lot about God, pretend we know him when we don't really have a clue, and hide the message. Or we can just outright reject the gospel. Those are our three choices. Which group are we going to be in? We want to be in that first group. That's where the joy is. But even in the first group, we got to remember the power is in the gospel. The power for salvation comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from us. So we can go out and be faithful. We can go out and do our part. I'm going to trust God with all the rewards part. I don't know that I can totally grasp that here on earth. Let me close with this. I read a story this week, and it was crushing about missionaries named Bill and Sarah Wills. And they were working with Wycliffe Bible translators. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or not, but they do phenomenal work translating the Bible into a lot of tribal languages, people who don't even have a language. Wycliffe will go, the love of God, to carry the gospel to them. The technology, computers, is making that job easier. It's still hard work. It is a labor of love. Hope you're praying for the missionaries we support here at OCC. And we heard from Mark and Karen Wagner just a couple months ago, if you remember where they're here. And they've been doing hard missions work. And at the end of 2020, kind of right in the midst of COVID, they finished a Bible translation project for a a village where they were working for 16 years to translate this Bible. Bill and Sarah Wills were doing that kind of work. They were immersed in this village in South America because they wanted to carry the gospel message to them. And so they learned the culture. They learned the language. They moved there. They lived there. They planted a church there, trying to to be faithful in carrying God's love to these people. And when they first showed up, there was a lot of enthusiasm, and people were excited. But this project took so long, 20 years. 
And as they were nearing the end of the completion of this translation project, the people in the village became more interested in producing drugs than reading the scriptures. And they finally finished this project. And they held a celebration. They, they planned this big party at the church that they'd planted. And Bill and Sarah Wills showed up to share this great news. And nobody came. Not a single villager. I was reading this story this week. Sarah, Sarah Wills, in particular, was, was mad. <laughs> she was angry, as I'm confident I would have been too. She'd given 20 years of her life to this project, and nobody cared. And so she started praying. She's smarter than me. Hold Stomped my foot at first. She, she started praying, and God met her in that place. And this is what she wrote. I want to share her words because they're so powerful. She wrote, it is though God has been washing his word over my soul and healing me. And he's opened my eyes to see all this, you ready, from his perspective. I'm just now beginning to realize all the work we did, 20 years of translating the Bible, all the work we did, we did it for him. That's the only thing that makes sense in all of this. We did it for God. I'm not sure how the rewards work, but we can't go out and be faithful because we think we're going to get control over 10 cities. That's, that's not the way it works, right? Our focus has to be the same as Sarah Mills. When we go out to share the gospel, we may face rejection. We may share it, and honestly, we might find no one's interested. They, they might not even show up. Well, we remember we're doing it for him. When we go into business for the right reason, when he returns out of his grace, he's going to reward us, I guarantee it, for the faithfulness that we've shown. Can we be in that first group? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care and God bless.